This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome to the living room at the Goldman School of Public Policy. I'm here today with the 11th Chancellor at the University of California at Berkeley, Carol Christ. We're going to talk about free speech, Chancellor Christ. Uh, Berkeley has been riven in the last year by complicated situations involving free speech. Uh, Why don't you recount what's happened over the last year and some of the episodes that have created difficulties for Berkeley, but uh, have also perhaps uh, led Berkeley to a new understanding of how to think about protecting free speech? Well, thank you for that question, Henry. I think the set of events that I think of as our uh, year of confrontation with free speech began in February of 20, um, I guess it was 2017, when Milo Yiannopoulos came here to speak by invitation of the Berkeley College Republicans. We thought we had prepared adequately for this event. It turns out that we hadn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, the speech didn't take place because there was a riot on Sproul Plaza instigated by an outside group called the Antifa that wanted to make it impossible for Milo Yiannopoulos to speak. Uh, that led to a lot of soul-searching on the campus's part. Ann Coulter then announced she was going to speak. We prepared much more fully for that event, but then she, in in fact, didn't show up. She subsequently claimed she had been denied the right of free speech on the Berkeley campus, but in fact, um, she didn't come. Actually, let's just, that's an interesting moment because, as I remember it, she had been said she was going to come on a certain date, and then the campus said, no, no, that date just doesn't really work. Here's another date. We'd be welcome to have you. And uh, she said no to that, claiming that somehow her free speech rights had been violated. Is that true, that her free speech rights had been violated by us giving her another day? Of course not. I mean, nobody has the right to speak in a certain venue on a certain date if the venue isn't available. I mean, that would be true for anybody. Say you had a string quartet and you wanted to have a string quartet concert in Hertz Hall on, I don't know, December 23rd at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and the hall wasn't available. Then you negotiate about the date. Right. So, so people, it was that kind of discussion. So free, free speech does not amount to somebody saying, I have the right to appear in any classroom at any time at the University of California to make my speech. Exactly. There are time, place, and manner uh, restrictions, and uh, certainly one of the time, place, and manner restrictions is the availability of the space at that particular And so that gets at an issue we're going to explore a little later, which is the issue that we are a university and we have to continue educating students, and that sometimes puts restrictions on when we can have people come and give speeches. So then what happened in the fall? So in the fall, we had what I sometimes call the tale of two speeches. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Berkeley College Republicans invited a speaker named Ben Shapiro. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben Shapiro is a serious, um, a well-educated uh, speaker, has very conservative views, but he should be able to speak on the Berkeley campus. And indeed, he had spoken on the Berkeley campus about a year and a half before. Uh, not to very much interest, frankly. But we were really worried about whether there was going to be, uh, whether he would be heckled down, whether there would be a disruptive riot. So we took extraordinary precautions to protect his right to speak. 
And indeed, he did speak successfully. He was not interrupted by heckling. There were demonstrations, but not violent demonstrations. And we felt we were beginning to change the narrative. Mm-hmm. Ben Shapiro was followed by um, another uh, intended appearance by Milo Yiannopoulos. He was calling it the Week of Free Speech. It was only four days, but that was what he was calling it, the Week of Free Speech. And he was bringing 25 speakers for 12 events over four days. It was essentially going to occupy the center of campus. He was uh, invited by, by a, a student organization with very few members, only five members, called the um, Berkeley Patriot. Uh, strange things started um, happening. Or be, we began to be aware of very odd things two to three weeks beforehand. The student organization had met none of the requirements of our events policy. Usually, you know, when you um, plan an event, especially of this ambition, you have to file forms with our police department to uh, uh, enable them. I have them. to do this as a dean. Let's be clear that if yes. I have a controversial speaker, I have to worry about. Uh, whether or not we have adequate police protection. I have to worry about paying for the venue if it's not one that I can otherwise control. That's exactly right. So they had not signed contracts for the venues. They had not paid the deposit for the venues. They hadn't um, provided the um, appropriate uh, security forms. And they hadn't given us any evidence, you know, contract, airplane tickets, that the speakers were indeed coming. So uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, about a week before the event, published on his website the list of invited speakers, and the Daily Cal, our student newspaper, picked those up and published them. And then the strangest thing happened. We started getting communications from these speakers saying, this is the first I've heard of this. I, okay. I, I'm, I'm, I have no intention of coming to Berkeley and speaking on that date. And uh, so we started realizing that, the, um, that this event was to a very great extent a fiction. So we called their bluff. Mm-hmm. And about 24 hours beforehand, the student group canceled and mm-hmm. the event didn't take place. Milo Yiannopoulos indeed did come the first date of the event. He uh, came to Sproul Plaza. He uh, took a, some selfies. He sang the Star Spangled Banner. There were about 50 people in the audience and then he left claiming that um, the police made him leave but that in fact wasn't the case. So let's talk about Milo a little bit. So you indicated that Ben Shapiro is a very serious conservative and worth listening to because he engages the mind and makes us think harder about things. A lot of people have said, uh, not so sure that Milo does the same kind of thing. He mocks people. He's rather juvenile in a lot of his claims. Uh, He engages in what some might call bloviation Mm -hmm. and uh, that he engages in hate speech, Mm -hmm. they would claim. Uh, Do we really have to have somebody who's a controversialist, which I would think he really is? He just wants to create controversy. Do we really have to protect his right to free speech here at Berkeley? Well, we have to uh, protect his right to free speech if he is legitimately invited in accordance with our policies. So there, it seems to me, the work we need to do is work with student groups to try to encourage them to invite um, individuals who, like Ben Shapiro, are serious thinkers who want to engage with their audiences, who want to engage with other points of view. 
I uh, um, have been using the metaphor to talk about these two events, the Ben Shapiro event and the Malo event, of the object and the shadow. For Ben Shapiro, the object was the speech. He wanted to come. He wanted to speak. We, um, uh, and as a matter of fact, it was Fox TV, not us, who we, we um, made a video of the speech. You could view it online as it was happening. You can now go to the web and see it. Um, so there's a digital imprint of this event that I think of as the shadow of the event, but the event was the main thing, mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. play is the thing, to mm-hmm. quote Hamlet. With Milo, it was completely the opposite. What he was interested in was the representation on the web. So in some sense, the actual event was secondary to whatever narrative he could create. Frankly, I think he was trying to provoke us into canceling the event mm-hmm. so that he could um, uh, have the narrative um, that that he wanted on the web. Berkeley doesn't mm-hmm. support free speech. Berkeley cancels right. free speech. Well, so, so there's two things here. One is the issue of the, of the shadow and the object, which I think you usefully describe. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting metaphor. The other thing, though, is let's just go back to the question of hate speech. Many people would claim that Milo Yiannopoulos engages in hate speech, and they would say, why does a university which cares about truth and evidence and decency uh, allow somebody like him to come? I mean, what is it that requires us to do this? I, th- that question, I think, goes to the you know really the heart of the matter. And and our constitution uh, has um, more extensive protections for free speech than any other liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it protects hate speech. It does not protect um, speech that is, is, can be understood as an immediate incitement to violence. But it does protect hate speech. And I myself believe, although I understand that other people believe differently, that protecting people's rights to say abhorrent things is an important part of the protection of our right of free speech. But I understand that our students today, um, they grew up uh, with instruction um, in, um, against bullying in the public schools. They understand what harassment is. They don't understand why it's not okay for them to say something in a classroom or in a dormitory that someone like Milo can come to campus and say in Zellerbach Auditorium. I want to push you a little harder, though, on this, because the question is, is how does protecting Milo Yiannopoulos' right to engage in what I personally actually do think is fairly hateful speech, how does that protect my rights to free speech? Well, the question is, who's the censor? So if you determine that someone has the right of determining what is hate speech and what is not hate speech, I believe you give um, a, a dangerous kind of authority to the government. And so um, someone that um, uh, is going to censor Milo's right to uh, engage in what we call hate speech today might call hate speech tomorrow something that is, for example, uh, critical of Roy Moore mm-hmm. or um, critical of, uh, of the kind of bigotry that you see in some of our, um, of our far-right groups today. So the danger is, is that one person's hate speech might be another person's valid criticism of somebody else. And since it's very hard to make the distinction... Mm-hmm. Therefore, we have to say, even when we think that it looks like hate speech to us, 
we need to allow it to make sure we protect the right of the person who would have a valid criticism that others might think is hate speech. That's exactly right. That's okay. exactly right. And so that, that takes care of that. Now, there's people who would argue that, in fact, other countries do have laws against hate mm-hmm. speech. Germany is most notable, and that has a lot to do with its experience uh, with the Third Reich and, and, and the Nazis and their attempt to try to see if they could limit the kind of talk that would lead to the rise again of fascism. Uh, but we don't have that kind of history, and it's not clear what we could obviously define to be hate speech in any way, given our experience as a nation and given uh, our uh, laws that we have. Is though that right? Well, though there's a really interesting claim, which I've given a lot of serious thought to, and be interested in your views about this, that some people are claiming we do have um, a similar history. We have a history of slavery. We have a history of Native American genocide, and that they see people who make this argument free speech as protecting the right and the greater access to the media of um, individuals who are really perpetra- or, um, uh, uh, continuing the, the, um, the, the, the really terrible history that we have of, of racism in this country. And, and I think that's a very hard issue, and it's something we have to think about is whether... We can find ways, though, that don't necessarily try to define certain kinds of speech as hate speech, but that nevertheless tries to right the wrongs, which I think are clearly manifest in American history. Certainly, I don't think anybody, at least almost nobody, would disagree that slavery is a terrible wrong, and we did a terrible thing there. Um, I mean, the sad thing is we do have the alt-right now, which does claim that maybe it wasn't such a a bad thing, which is is hard to uh, comprehend. Uh, So... That's the question of hate speech. Let's talk about academic freedom and what we want a university to be, and then let's circle back to the question of free speech. How is academic freedom the same or different from uh, free speech? Academic freedom applies to faculty members, Mm -hmm. and it means that when I teach Victorian literature, Mm -hmm. for example, I have the freedom to pursue um, my um, both teaching and research um, in regard to that topic in whatever way seems to me intellectually engaging, ways in which I, I, I feel my own um, uh, research has you know, led me to think is right. It really is a protection of faculty members, and that includes instructors, graduate student instructors, the, the, their inquiry in regard to their teaching and research in any way that they mm-hmm. feel is intellectually responsible. Do you think that that is- doesn't protect, academic freedom doesn't protect somebody coming to Sproul Plaza and wanting to make a speech about anything they want to make Do you a think, speech Does it about. extend to students too? I mean, my sense is that the penumbra of academic freedom also extends to students, that we want students to feel like they can speak freely about issues as well. Yes, but that doesn't mean that there isn't argumentation and a sense of right and wrong. So... Um, uh, if you uh, you know get a paper from a student right. and the student makes what you think is either a wrong argument on logical grounds or a wrong argument on evidentiary grounds, it doesn't mean you as a faculty member um, have to respect their academic freedom and give that um, student an A. And it's maybe worth backing up to to say that although we give the great privilege of academic freedom to academics. We also judge them as they are being promoted on the degree to which their research 
uh, adheres to the canons of logic and evidence and so forth. So this is not a right that's just given to anybody who happens to show up at the doorstep of a university. It is based upon the notion that they really are trying to do good knowledge uh, research. That's exactly right. So that they're both internal systems in terms of uh, promotion, salary advances, step increases for our faculty, but there's also the external form right. um, that um, uh, faculty, that's what um, uh, John Stuart Mill t- talked about as the free marketplace of ideas, and certainly faculty participate in that free market. No faculty member expects to put his or her ideas out in the public forum and not be challenged, not be critiqued, not be held to account for those so ideas. So academic freedom is actually about allowing free speech, but also disciplining it by the notions of logic and evidence and and having really an argument, not just saying whatever comes into your mind. So a university has sort of is rooted in free speech, but it wants to go beyond free speech. And that means that we would hope that because logic and evidence might diminish the amount of hate speech because you certainly couldn't say things that were hateful and based upon error, uh, that we could then get a better dialogue within a university. So a university is about dialogue. Yes, that's exactly right. It's about dialogue. It's about evidence. It's about conversation. It's about exchange of views. And that's a value that we have to do even more now to foster. One of the things that's interesting, everyone knows that Berkeley is the home of the free speech movement. Mm -hmm. And I've found it really interesting to reflect on the differences between the free speech movement as the campus experienced it in the 1960s and the free speech controversy today. So the free speech movement in the 1960s was about students claiming their right to political speech Mm -hmm. on the campus of the University of California at Berkeley. And indeed, um, civil rights activists among the students joined forces with uh, Scranton Republicans. This was the year of the convention which Goldwater and Scranton were competing for the Republican nomination to claim the right to have uh, tables on Sproul Plaza in which they gave out political literature. That's really quite different students claiming their right to um, political speech from what's going on right now where sometimes student groups um, are um, claiming the right to invite whoever they want to speak on campus, but sometimes the individuals themselves um, claiming that I have the right to come to any campus and, and, right. and make a speech that is reflective but of my views. But we still want to protect people being allowed to invite anyone they want because we know knowledge That's sometimes right. comes from situations where you might not expect it. Um, but there's also groups like Antifa who would claim that they have the right to heckle and to use the heckler's veto to stop this kind of dialogue going on in universities. How do we think about that problem? I, well, I, I think there are two different issues there. One is the heckler's veto, and there right. was certainly you would find people on the campus itself, members of our community, that believe the heckler's veto is exercising um, your right of free speech. But the right of free speech doesn't protect you're denying somebody else's right of free speech by shouting them down, making it impossible for them to be heard. Then the second issue is whether an outside group um, should have the 
um, freedom to come in and exercise essentially uh-huh. the heckler's veto, deny someone the right of free speech, have a riot so that the, it's impossible for the event to, to go so on. So let's get back to the question of hate speech and the notion that the Constitution currently requires that we protect hate speech, that we do allow student groups or others to invite people who might engage what some of us might think is hate speech. Us thinking that academic freedom uh, allows us then to discuss these kinds of things and perhaps engage in a dialogue where we help students understand better the way the world works. Or to put it another way, the antidote to hate speech is more dialogue, is one it's statement the, I've heard you make. Yeah, Oliver Wendell Holmes, the antidote to, to speech you know, is more speech. Hateful speech is more speech. And how do universities do this in a way that might get us beyond the problem of, well, you say it's hate speech, but I don't, and vice versa. What is it that we do, going back to what we've discussed, that really is important in a society? That I, that question is such an important one. One of the conclusions I've come to in this um, time of thinking intensely about free speech is free speech is a process of engagement. Mm-hmm. It's not a set of principles you put down on a, on a, on a piece of paper. And what I believed is that we need to engage much more fully than we have as a community Mm -hmm. with the issue of free speech so we can think about the conflicts, the tensions between uh, free speech and the values that we have as a community. Some of the things that I'm doing, bringing um, people with sharply divergent views Mm -hmm. uh, to campus uh, to have a dialogue with each other so we can see what civil discourse across uh, um, difference looks like. One of your faculty, Robert Reich, um, uh, uh, said at a talk on free speech, he wants the um, the very smartest conservatives to debate with because he says that refines the character of his thinking. thinking yes. So that's what we do as a community. We um, we subject uh, people's arguments to careful critical scrutiny, and it's something that I believe we have to do even more to teach our students. It's complicated at a place that's as big as Berkeley. So Berkeley isn't a single community where I can call an all-college meeting and bring everybody. Mm -hmm. It would have to be into the football stadium and say, let's have a dialogue about free speech. That's kind of a laughable, um, laughable idea of an event. So you have to keep repeating the event over and over. We've had several panels about free speech, and we had a particularly interesting panel a number of weeks ago on the harm of speech, which is a subject that keeps coming up. I think one of the things, though, too, that we need to make sure we do as a university so that we don't perpetuate the fact that some people have more access to free speech than others is that we have to be a very inclusive and diverse community and that that's really an exceptionally important thing that we must do. That's exactly right. I mean, the argument that um, underrepresented students and communities are making are... Uh, some um, uh, groups in our society, some individuals in our society have so much more access to platforms and power than others that the uh, the right of free speech um, really instantiates, protects uh, power hierarchies. And so we have to do our best to make sure that we are providing um, a platform in which we are giving many groups and individuals 
access. Though I would like to talk a little bit about how the digital world really changes things. Let's uh, talk about that, because yeah. that is one of the issues here that's really problematic. I think it is. And, and again, to, to quote your faculty member, Robert Reich, he said when the Internet first started to develop, he thought this was a great equalizer. And he's come to the point of view that it is not an, an equalizer. In fact, it is enormously subject to, um, to uh, wealth um, and the access that wealth gives to a platform. But what particularly strikes me is that... Um, uh, that that the digital world makes permanent and gives a kind of universal accessibility mm-hmm. to things that would have been in a pre-digital world contained within the room itself. So if I were to use some hateful term in relationship to you, it would stop with the conversation. If someone uses some hateful term or hate speech um, uh, on the Internet, it's permanently there. And so I don't think our law has caught up with how the digital world has changed speech. Although I've been driven to read about the French Revolution, because in the French Revolution, censorship was lifted, and suddenly there's this profusion of newspapers of the left, right, center, all sorts of types. And a lot of stuff that had never been said before got said about the different groups within France. And it took a long while before the media, and maybe they still haven't even decided exactly how to deal with those kinds of problems. So part of the problem is making sure that the media and the institutions of a society start developing ways of adjudicating sort of what's acceptable because it is based on evidence and truth and knowledge and what's maybe can be said but really isn't acceptable. Yes, but uh, we live in a world, maybe this was true in pre-revolutionary France or revolutionary France, but right now we have so many echo chambers in which people read the media that reflect their point of view. And so there is, I remember when I was in graduate school and a young faculty member listening to Walter Cronkite every night and he would say, that's the way it is. And we don't have any voice in today's media world, very noisy media world world in which people trust to say that's the way it is, um, that there are lots of echo chambers, lots of media that are directed at very particular audiences. So that's the thing that seems to me very complicated about this media moment. But to, to finish, I think universities play an extremely important role because we do care about evidence and truth Yes. and, and uh, logic, yes. and we have to keep pushing the notion that those are really essential features of any dialogue, and that free speech without that is just noise. That's exactly right. If you have alternative facts, you have to be able to uh, show where the alternative facts have roots and real right. things. Right. And so there's lots of work for the University of California to do. Uh, extraordinary amounts of work for the University of California to do. Thank you, Chancellor Christ. Thank you.